0: Whoa! Settle down. He's chomping at the bit. That's right. <laughs> We're on the right. Let's get this party started.
1: On a Saturday night. <laughs>
2: Well, wow. we're we're like the most out of sync beatbox ever. <laughs> <laughs> <Play me like laughs> on <Zoom. laughs>
3: We don't put the beat in the box, right? <laughs> most of us are the blind people that have no rhythm.
2: But I but I got a I got a theme idea now. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no Stevie Wonders in this group.
1: No.
0: Uh, indeed.
3: Recording in progress.
4: Hey, and welcome to another episode of AT Banter. Banter, 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 banter. Uh, this is of course the podcast where we talk with advocates and members of the disability community to educate and inspire better conversation about disability. Hey, my name is Rob Minot. Joining me today, Mr. Ryan Flurry. Oh,
0: thanks so much for remembering me. Yeah, see, well, you know what? And I gave you that
4: dramatic pause because I wanted to make you sweat
0: if I was going to go to you
4: first because I know I got crap for it last week when I went to Steve first, so... Uh, well,
0: I was still going to give you crap because it should have been ladies first.
4: I keep telling you, I'd save the best for last. That's true, and, too. Uh, I keep
0: forgetting. Spoilers.
4: Story. Thanks a lot. Uh, hey, uh, speaking of... Uh, Spoilers? No, forget it. Oh, hey, no, what? I don't. I don't know. Hey, it's Steve Barclays in the
2: room too. Hey, I'm going to say hey because Rob says hey. Hey. Yeah,
4: it's my thing. Hey, it's Rob. I'm going to have to. We're going to have to talk at the Christmas party. Uh, <laughs> hey, uh, who else is here? Hey, we also have Liz Malone here.
3: Always happy and shocked at the same time to be invited back.
4: Yeah, listen, we're shocked that you keep coming back. So. <laughs>
3: it's, it's a mutual shock.
4: Yeah, yeah, exactly. We just we stand and stare at each other for a good five minutes. <laughs> because we're both in shock. Uh, and OK, but th- that is not all. We do also have a very special guest for today's episode. Ryan, I'm going to let you do the honors because this is kind of your thing. I say hey. And you introduce our guests. So, Ryan, who else do we have here?
0: Joining us this week is Amy Amanti, who is an artist, accessibility consultant, and advocate in the disability community. Welcome, Amy.
1: Woohoo! Happy to be here. Yay! Hey.
4: Woo! Somebody else is happy to be here. This is weird. Like, what's what's wrong with us? <laughs> what else can
1: you do on a rainy day in Vancouver?
4: Yeah, well, that's true. That's, that's Anybody else's wrong.
1: backyard flooding? Mine is.
4: Nope. Well, my basement is, but uh, uh-huh.
2: not That's my back. ridiculous.
4: Um, uh, all right. Well, listen. Uh, let's uh, let's get right to business because I think I feel like we have a big show today. I'm excited. Um, Ryan, why don't you tell the fine folks what we're doing today?
0: We are talking about a topic I know absolutely nothing about. But today's topic is all about ableism.
1: Well, I can tell you, Ryan i know a lot about this topic so you're in good hands I
0: good promise. i can just sit back and let you ramble
3: <laughs> and once again a lady saves the day
4: i knew bringing you on was the right choice
3: <laughs>
4: <laughs> All right, the three the, us three guys will just go just get a get a coffee go grab a beer <laughs> <laughs> we
3: Thanks got I'm this amy and i we got this don't worry <laughs>
4: No. OK, all joking aside, though, this is a very uh, important topic to us. Uh, I, I've wanted to do a, a show about this for a while, um, but uh, we just we weren't really sure how to how to approach it, uh, who to have on the opportunity presented itself. Uh, Amy offered to come on and uh, and help us talk about this. And uh, we took her up on that. And, and here we are.
1: And here I am.
4: So, you know what, let's maybe to start out, um, why don't we just just for people in the audience who maybe aren't familiar with the idea of ableism. um, Who wants to take a stab at at giving us like a little bit of a loose definition of of what we mean when we we talk about ableism?
1: Well, I'd love to hear what you all think about it before we
3: get into the nuts and bolts. Anybody, any volunteers? I'm happy to throw one out. Yeah. So I think this is, it's probably close to what the textbook definition, but in a nutshell, it's the discrimination On the basis of either physical, mental, or intellectual ability. I also I also think of it as the forgotten ism, if you will. (laughs) Yes. I know exactly what you mean by that. That's like a right out of the Webster's dictionary.
1: Perfect. Mm
4: -hmm. I was talking to somebody about this uh the other night, and that's kind of how I framed it too. It it really is an ism that's unique from all of the other isms that are that are bad. Um, in yeah, Because I really do think that it is forgotten. and Not a lot of people really know about it or even think about it all that much. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's a little bit more insidious than a lot of the other isms because it doesn't, a lot of times it doesn't necessarily have any malice behind it, but it's still like really prevalent in people's attitudes.
1: Yeah, this is, this is what we call a microaggression. Um, and I guess, you know, all equity seeking folks, um, I use that as opposed to marginalized people. Um, I think, I, you know, like when we talk about ageism, it's pretty clear what that is. We talk about racism. I think many people sort of have this understanding of racism. Um, there's all sorts of isms, um, but ableism is sometimes uh, the way I look at it is the second cousin twice removed, right? <laughs> Where it's, we're always like the last person to be invited to the party. Um, to have these discussions. But when we're talking about microaggressions, so uh, ableism looks like a whole bunch of different things, which I think is one of the reasons why it's hard to sort of figure out what is ableist and what isn't, right? And what is systemic ableism? You know, if we go back far enough, we can look at the relationship between systemic ableism and microaggressions. So microaggressions are things that come out of our mouths that we don't intend to be harmful. It could be language, it could be a joke, it could be a phrase. Um, here's an example. Your concerns are falling on deaf ears. Oh, I'm I'm so blind, I didn't see you there. Those are actually considered microaggressions because the the correlation is is that deaf is bad because i didn't hear the concern and blind is bad because i bumped into somebody i didn't you know a blind spot means you missed something of the obvious um, so those are considered microaggressions and then it goes it goes deeper so microaggressions around language like idiot stupid dumb insane crazy those are all things that were traditionally speaking if we go back not even maybe that long ago 40 50 years ago those were diagnoses So you weren't diagnosed maybe with Down syndrome or with a learning disability or ADHD um, or dyslexia. You were just dumb, stupid, moron, idiot. And they were actually medical diagnoses. So we find that there are a lot of people, what happens with microaggressions is a lot of people with disabilities hear these all day long, whether it's in a joke form or whether it's the random person saying, oh man, this is driving me insane. Um, And imagine if you are somebody who identifies in that way and are impacted by language and hear this language all day, every day. And the type of mental toll that takes on you, the way it breaks down your own spirit as a human being. I mean, I I know a lot of folks that live with mental illness that are truly, truly impacted by folks using terms like crazy and insane and nuts and all those things. So like, it's been a real learning curve for me too when I teach about microaggressions around disability how do I edit my own language? Because every once in a while, I want to say, this drives me insane. And then I say, nope, it drives me bonkers. It drives me batty, It drives me bananas, right? Like trying to find these other words that are maybe more inclusive um, of of all people around us. And that's the same. I think for me, it's the same when we talk about gender identity and gender expression. Like I no longer say, hey, you guys, because there are some people who don't identify with that term. And that's really, really devastating um, in an impactful way on their their sense of self so i say hey friends hey folks i use n- non-gendered language um and i think that's how we can be inclusive of people because we just don't know who's in our space right and i don't want to hurt anybody or offend anybody if it's not necessary and it's no big challenge for me to change my language that's just microaggressions friends <laughs> in a in a in a compact little box
4: well, and I feel like, you know, those may be termed microaggressions, but actually I think that out of all the different ableist issues, those are actually the hardest ones to break because yeah. Uh, yeah. You probably. know, in general people people have been using these idioms and this this phrase for years and years and years and those things are really hard habits to break. Yeah. And you know, even you, you know, you're you're you mentioned that you go out of your way to to make those changes yet even occasionally you do slip so you know for somebody who like the average person out there these would be really really hard habits to break and especially when i feel like there's a there's a segment of you know the general public that would push back against that a little bit and be like oh well that's harmless that's just a saying or that's not exactly that's not what i mean but they don't really understand necessarily the impact that that can have on somebody who that is relevant to
1: right right and how it changes the course of um what they do in their lives it, it can also change how they access employment how they access education how they access The medical system, because a lot of these terms, too, are still very much tied to the medical model of disability, which is a whole other thing that we could have a whole other podcast about. But essentially, that's the idea that folks with disabilities are broken and need to be fixed, as opposed to the social model, which is, again, in 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 a small little compact box, is the idea that it's the environment that is the barrier, not the person doesn't have the barrier, it's the environment, right? So the person doesn't need to be fixed. We just need to remove stairs, um, you know, as a as an oversimplification of, of the, the difference of the medical model and the social model. But, you know, I have, and, and it didn't occur to me either for years, and then I had become uh, involved in spaces with people who were talking about these from a very deep rooted place and a place where, um, you know, they had become isolated in their homes because they were afraid of the world because the world looked at them in this way and they experienced this kind of language all the time whether it was from educators or medical professionals or family members and it just took such a toll on their mental health their sense of self their sense of like empowerment and independence and just like like set them back as human beings and i don't want to do that to anybody truly um whether i'm impacted by the language or not is another story but because there are folks out there that are, that are it seems kind of unfair. This is like a, a this is another example of a microaggression for other equity seeking groups. But you know, when we, when we hear things like ball and chain, when we're talking about a woman, the old ball and chain, um, that's a microaggression. So like for women, identifying women out there, what is it like when you hear your partner say that to you all the time? It starts to take a toll sometimes. Um, uh, People of color, notably black people, when we use the term nitty gritty, I encourage you to Google that. It's so very racist. You'll never use it again. Uh, But people people don't know this. Right. And so sometimes with the microaggression, you don't know what you don't know. And so that the intent is not to harm. um, But we have to do a little bit of research into changing our vernacular, maybe possibly dot dot dot. Yeah. Look at look it up. You'll see some. Some real interesting facts about where that term came from, and I was in the space with with somebody who identified as black, and somebody used that term, and I was shocked when they explained. I like, you know, it's like how many other terms am I using that have these deep rooted systemic, either racism or oppression or ableism to them, and we have no idea now, where they come from.
3: I, I do want to bring up a point that, mm. and I think that the the discussion about the microaggression is extremely valid but when we're in a society where we have so much trouble getting rid of even the aggressive language mm, yeah. or not even putting that language on the same playing field then how do we move forward when when we're still allowing so many of these other hurtful terminology whether it be on any of the isms yeah and then taking it down a level to the micro so yeah. I feel like there's a, a little bit of an imbalance in society when we become hypersensitive in a good way mm-hmm. for some of the sensitivities that do exist in terms of language, but we're still sort of turning away. And here we go turning a blind eye, mm-hmm. a common one, to some of the other language that is used. And I'm going to just give you an example. When you hear some very hateful language about, let's say, certain ethnic groups, Mm -hmm. namely the N-word, which is why I'm only saying the N-word because it's a horrible word and it's a very hurtful word. But when an athlete can then make a comment where they refer to Asian people as making chinky face, you know, chinky eyes Mm -hmm. and that word gets, one, you know, gets a a news report, but then there's no repercussion. So when you have certain things that aren't even on the same playing fields, then how do we how do we pick and choose? This is,
1: I mean, you know, if we if we you're absolutely correct by that. And I think there are some things that are more obvious and some things that are less obvious. Um, And so microaggressions are are really very non-obvious to folks. Um, And then you go kind of go up a tier to a little more obvious, which is like we don't refer to people as wheelchair bound or bed bound or home bound, right? It's like the wheelchair is the device that allows me access to the world, right? I'm not tied or bound to a wheelchair. So that's also considered ableism. Um, and you know what, Liz, as you talk about um, these identifying features that we use for racial and ethnic groups, I just, I just did a panel discussion um, earlier in the week on how we, in audio description, identify characters of different mm-hmm. backgrounds because some of the folks were saying we had users who were of different backgrounds. And there was a, um, a a woman who identified as South Asian and she said, I really hate it when people say that a South Asian character or an Asian character has almond eyes because it it continues this st- the stereotype. Mm-hmm. It, it re-stigmatizes a community. It's the same person pe- same thing as saying to some extent, like this is a Jewish character and they have a large nose, mm-hmm. you know, like we're taking the stereotypes from history and adding them into our audio description. And then what does that do to the listener? We, think, we tend to think in media that media is God. And if we hear it on TV, we can, we can emulate that. Um, and that's where we get our cues from. So there's a real danger in using language that's not representative of the community, right? And has no input from the community. Um, and I think the same is very true for ableism because it looks like all sorts of, all freaking sorts of things.
4: Yeah. And you know, it, it's funny. Language is, is such a funny thing, Very much. Um, but it's really hard to change. And yeah. I feel like part of the key to this is, you know, and it's interesting that we're talking about language first, because um, I feel like in order to get to the place where we need people to start um, altering the way that that they talk about disability, and to change some of this language, and to be aware of what they're saying, I feel like we you, we have to we have to make them understand what ableism is, and and why it's important mm-hmm. um, first in order for them to really clue in and be like, oh, okay, you know, I, I do need to watch what I say. One one that I I struggle with on a regular
2: basis is the term able-bodied. Well,
1: that's hmm. interesting. Because you are able bodied?
2: As, as somebody who I guess self identifies as being able bodied, um, I wonder if that is something that people find discomforting.
1: Have you heard the term tab? T A B? No. no, I haven't. So many of us in the disability community um, refer to people who, who are able bodied as tabs okay. temporarily able-bodied <laughs> that's a good way <laughs> it right like you're not guaranteed to be have a body free of injury or illness mm-hmm. for your entire life you could join the club tomorrow right like knock on wood i don't want you to i have been part of the a, club at times yeah that is a reality um you know i here's here's um from all of the research that, and i have done lots of research and had lots of roundtable discussions lots of panel discussions a lot of anecdotal stuff and a lot of um Actual, like research based surveys out in the world around language, around ableism, around how people, and, and you know, the truth is, is that language is different for everybody, but there are some real common things like, you know, person first language is much more popular than um, identity first language. But it also depends on who it's coming from. So person with a disability, like coming up on December 3rd is International Day of Persons with Disabilities, not disabled persons. Um, and so if you're able-bodied, like I encourage folks when we talk about language, that you don't get to use the term disabled because that's a reclaiming word, right? So when I say I'm disabled, it's about the environment being disabling. When an able-bodied person say it's disabled, it's about me being broken like right so there's this, there's a power dynamic there which can be a part of an ableist society which is how folks that don't have disabilities look at folks that do so like like here's the one of the most obvious ones you go in for a job interview and you're blind or you're a wheelchair user and the person behind the desk wonders to themselves huh i wonder how that person uses a computer i wonder how they'll get to work will they be late because they're sick Well, you know, all of these things, these are ableist assumptions that folks make because you don't have the information. Whereas statistically, people with disabilities who get employed take less sick days. They stick around in careers longer Mm -hmm. uh, than people that don't identify with disability. uh, And it doesn't cost so much because another part of ableism is, well, I can't hire this person because it's going to cost me a lot of money to uh, like, you know, adapt my building for them. Um, so those are all also part of of ableism that we have to, and it's systemic. It's deep rooted into our thinking. And so we have to encourage folks to think differently. And that's where the rub is is because not everybody buys into this idea, but it makes a difference from my end when I go into, you know, when I was trying to go to, to uh, college, and I won't name which one it was, um, and, and the pushback I got about how I was going to be able to participate in some of the programs. Um, and I thought, well, give me a try. I have the right to, to the same teaching as any other person does. That's, you know, up to me to figure out how I'm going to, you know, write my assignment. That's not up to you to decide that. Um, so like ableism looks like a whole heck of a lot of things. Ableism also looks like, if you're curious when I'm sitting on the bus and somebody says to me, so how did you go blind? Well, it's none of your darn business, how I went blind. And I always tell folks that for me, because I'm an educator in the space, I'll share with them my story and then I'll tell them something about a friend of mine who had a very tragic and they may be listening to this podcast I'm trying to be careful but had a very they they were um, tragically attacked and abused by a parent and lost both their eyes in that attack as a small child now imagine you are on the bus and you get asked that several times a day and how triggering that is for you. So, you know, it's a reminder to folks as much as they want to make a connection as much as they want to understand what my lived experience is one, it's none of your business. And two, not everybody is like, Oh yeah, I was born blind. This is my whole life.
0: Right? Would you rather not have somebody ask you? I don't know. Just make an assumption. Because to me, that's almost no different than you standing at a street corner and somebody hauling you across the street instead of asking you, do you need assistance?
1: Oh, but that's, but for, for me, Ryan, that's very different Because the idea of assistance, absolutely, you ask, you don't touch a wheelchair, you don't pull a cane, you don't pull a person. I think when you ask, um, as long as you respect what the answer is, that's that's the right behavior instead of the pulling, the grabbing, the assuming and doing the act. So we in the disability community call this act, listen, act, Um, ask, listen, act. So you ask, you listen, and you act upon what that person says. So there's a whole convention around that. Um, But the idea of of asking me how I went blind or how you you became a wheelchair user, those things can be very triggering and traumatic.
0: And I can understand that. But at what point do you stop interacting with the public? I love it when little kids come up to me and ask me how I lost my sight. It's an education moment.
1: Well, kids may be different. When kids ask that question, it comes from a different place. Right. When adults ask that question, they should likely know better. And I and I too would not ask a quadriplegic how they became a quadriplegic. If they volunteer that information and we have a discussion, that's a different thing.
0: Would you have 10 years ago before you learned about ableism? See, that's what I'm getting at is like, I know dick all about ableism. Yeah. So where do you learn about ableism? What is ableistic attitudes? Because I don't know. And I'm sure there's many others that don't.
1: Yeah, I, you know, it's a, I think that's a good point. Ryan, I mean, I think it's if you extrapolate that to indigenous experiences, decolonization, if you extrapolate that to racism, you know, there are things that we may know more about racism than we do about ableism because it's been more prominently discussed and the disability community doesn't rally the same way as other equity seeking groups do, do, right?
0: Well, the other side Um, of the coin is the disability community can't agree on anything.
1: That is, well, they can agree on <laughs> some things, but there is, there is a challenge with that as well. You are absolutely right. But I would think that equity seeking folks in other communities to have the same challenges. Like I know folks in the deaf community have some of the same challenges. Um, and so folks in the LGBTQ2 plus community have some very similar challenges in terms of sure, language yeah. and how folks identify and what's, you know, proper to say and what's not and who gets to use what, all that kind of stuff. So you know, we well pointed out that language is changing and evolving and it's very regional. Like the language we use here is going to be different than the language they use in Toronto might be different right. than the language they use in New York. And, um, you know, but there are a handful of things that we can like generally, like we all agree that we don't use the word handicapped, you know, and if somebody says to me something, again, I listen to intention. So if somebody says to me, Oh, are you looking for the handicap bathroom? Mm-hmm. I, you know, I know they're, they're not meeting harm. What I might reply with is, Oh yes, if you can show me where the accessible bathroom is, that'd be very helpful.
0: Yeah, see. Right? And, and, and maybe I'm just an ignorant 50-year-old whatever <laughs> you want to call me. But to me, that's just being oversensitive. Like they're com- they're like, and you're like you're right. Intent is everything. You yeah. can you can get an idea of, of the person's voice, their characteristics, their manners when they're asking you that question well
3: and let me let me just jump in there ryan just to piggyback what you're saying when parking spaces still say handicapped Mm -hmm. so how do we take things out of the lexicon when then they're everywhere it's, it's 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 printed on on government buildings and signs and things of that nature so how do we how do we change that? And without, you know, when I understand exactly the point you're making when you say, I'm looking for the accessible restroom. Sure. Um, but at the same time, you don't want someone to say, oh, God, I was stupid, angry, angry blind person that's, you know, gone by. Because then you also leave that impression of, I never oh, do it good. in an angry way. Well, you, well you, you, I mean, and yeah. I'm sure you're a lovely person. Let's just be honest. <laughs> but I'm an educator.
1: I'm an educator about right. the topic, right? So there's a different, there's a difference, right? right. R- Ryan and I are not as lovely.
3: We fully admit that. <laughs> so-
2: <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but well, you'll, you'll notice that I'm being particularly quiet during this episode. And part of that is I am also a 50s guy who who is... Uh, you know, I was raised in a very racist household. So I know that mm. uh, a lot of the language that springs to my mind is totally inappropriate. I've sure. learned that over the years. I, I have not until recently really uh, dealt with this idea of ableism and ableistic language. And that is going to be more difficult, I think, for me to wrap my head around and to stop doing, because I have some nasty habits that have been developed over many years. But, but I also, you know, I look at some of these things as being irrelevancies that take away from the key uh, situation, which is trying to achieve equality. Uh, and, and I wonder how much you disengage other people by focusing on Rules. Really? Well, minutia, thing, yeah. things that you know don't necessarily bring about a good result, and and one of those things I think is is criticizing language. Whether, uh, it, you know, I like what you said, Amy, about um, uh, about you 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 view it with intention. Not everybody does, though. Some people mm-hmm. are more reactive. And might jump on somebody for using an inappropriate phrase rather than, yeah. you know, engage them.
1: Trying, yeah, what the intention is. Yeah, and,
2: and that stuff turns off people and yeah. and creates resistance to to the idea. Um, you know, you you gave the example of of nitty gritty, and you said Google it, and I'll never use it again. I I see nothing that that Google has given me here.
1: I'll send uh, you the link.
2: Uh, well, I I've, I've found a link that says it's it's connected to the slave trade, but mm-hmm. there's actually no evidence to that. The, it, it it was the, the first reference that anybody can find it being connected to the slave trade was in two, 2005 at a uh, at a workshop around language.
1: Right. But if one person from the black community says to you personally,
0: mm-hmm.
1: please don't use that. It's highly offensive. Do you take that and say, well, that's your opinion. Or do you say, you know what? It's not a big deal for me to remove that from my language.
2: I, I would. That's
1: what I heard in a space yeah. with an advocate around Black Lives Matter, and I thought, you know what? That is not difficult for me to remove from my language.
2: It 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 isn't. But should we be removing necessarily things from our language that people just have misconceptions about?
1: I think we haven't proved whether there's. I mean, you can you can say the same thing about the word "handicapped" and where it came from, because there's a lot of different documentation. About where that word comes from, most people in the disability community believe uh, that it came after World War One, when veterans were begging on the streets with their hand in cap, or their cap in hand, rather, um, because they couldn't find work. They were disabled veterans. Um, but if you do enough research, you can find that this goes all the way back to like I don't know the 1500s, and one mm-hmm. of the one of the French. Uh, I don't know, I want to. I want to say it's King Louis, but I'm sure it's not. But one of the one of the kings who, in the same way, actually to some extent made it legal for their their uh, warriors who were injured too big for money for money yep um, because they thought it wasn't fair they weren't going to be able to get a job then you look at that and you go well that's actually kind of equitable right um for the 1500s so yes language changes language involves but it's the intent around the language so it doesn't matter where it came from necessarily there's an intent around it so i you know what I do in this space, and believe you me, I have uh, made a significant amount of money seriously around this space in teaching this stuff. I offer the information. You get to choose what you do with it. I'm not asking you to change. I'm, I'm telling you what comes from community members that comes from, and if you look, look like, um, Deep enough into some of the big disability organizations and the language that they use, um, you know, Autism BC, for example, their community that uses identity first language as opposed to person first language. So, as an organization, they will say, you know, autistic people, and then under that banner, there are all sorts of people that will identify differently, right? But that's the highest bar of language. So you take your cue from that. So if you're writing on your website that um, we are accessible for autistic people, you use the language that that they model. Right. Even though that you know that your friend may identify as a person with autism. Right. So there's community, So in, in, in the blind community, our highest bar of language is blind and partially sighted. Then there's all sorts of ways that people talk about their mm-hmm. sight loss. Um, underneath that banner, right? And we aren't gonna get that right all the time. But I, I continue to think that if we use the highest bar of language, we offend the least number of people. And the idea of this extreme is absolutely valid. I too think, okay, there's an extreme here. When's the pendulum gonna come back in the other direction? That's why the conversation around language is an offer. That's all it is, is an offer. It's not a you must, it's not a mathematical formula that X plus Y equals Z. It's an offer. And what I find is that folks in the arts community are taking this up big time, hugely. All, sort, all sorts of, of oppression under uh, any banner of oppression because uh, they come innately from a band of misfits. And I use that in a loving way. But arts people were all people like started in high school that were like, didn't fit in anywhere else. So you have this collection of folks from all these different backgrounds, and they want to make everybody feel as comfortable and as safe as possible. So the minute you find yourself in one of those spaces, we are having deep conversations around pronouns, about safe spaces, about how we disengage and engage with content and with each other and, you know, a whole bunch of like community charters and safety things that are put in place to make sure that any type of oppression doesn't creep into the space. It's really Quite fascinating when you get really deep into some of these conversations, and and as as extreme as you think I am in sharing the information, I'm somewhere right in the middle.
2: No, I'm, I, right I don't here. think you're extreme at all. I, you know, I I, I find this conversation really fascinating, and I, I I know that you know I can I can pull out probably dozens of words that that <laughs> I I have have used in the past, yeah, uh, and and am trying really hard not to. But every now and then one of them pops out. It's like, oh, oh, I should have said that.
1: Just use the curse word, Steve, because like, you know, (laughs) almost none of those are microaggressions or ableist. You (laughs) You pop out on any of those.
4: Yeah. I just use cock trumpet. (laughs)
1: <laughs> are we are we allowed to swear in this space i wasn't oh, yeah, sure. absolutely absolutely <laughs> yeah, you just you just drop an f-bomb now and again instead of anything else
3: you're, like, <laughs> you're all good <laughs> there's, there's a
2: writer that i absolutely love by the name of christopher moore who in his writings has some of the most fun expletives that uh, that you'll ever find and uh it's hilarious Yeah. My, just bring some of those back yeah my favorite ex <laughs> A expletive of his is fuck stockings. Oh,
1: <laughs> I love it.
2: I love it a lot. Yeah. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I mean, you know, like
1: just, I was just thinking about this and like, there's all these sort of little experiences that, that kind of solidify and pepper things. But when I, so I'm, I'm in a stage production right now, um called Amelia. We've had 16 shows. And when I was cast in, in the role, we were all sent to copy the script and the director said, I want you to read the script before you accept the role. Because there's content in here that people might be uncomfortable with. Because we're using um, slurred language around race, we're using a lot of insane, crazy microaggressions, and they wanted to make sure that people felt comfortable with the script, knowing that we can't really change it because it's somebody else's writing. Before we agreed to perform and say these words out of our mouths, right? Like, so this is like the kind of community contract that's being created that we're gonna we're gonna create a safe space for each other. And what's in the script is in the script, but you know, we're, we're creating an environment where we can support each other through that language. Because there were some people in the cast who were profoundly impacted by some of this language. Um, so like, there you go, right? It's, it, like it exists everywhere and it's just, if it's on your radar, you notice it. If it's not on your radar, you don't. And there are a ton of things that aren't on my radar, surely. Uh, when we get deep into talking about decolonization, I think to myself, I don't even know where to start. Right. Like I I just sort of in the, since the pandemic started, have learned how to do a proper land acknowledgement and the meaning around that and how I become an ally to that community. And my invite for folks is become an ally to the disability community. How do you do that? Well, you consider some of these things and make some changes where you can make changes.
4: Yeah, I have, I have a couple of thoughts. I mean, I, I think that for a lot of people, you know, we'll be honest, like change yeah. is hard. Change is hard. Um, and for a lot of people, things are changing really fast. And I feel like that's why a lot of these issues are, are getting pushback from people, mm-hmm. um, because it's a lot of change and it's a lot of change fast. And I think that it's all positive change. Um, but to step it back a little bit and, and talk about um, the disability community and like not being able to agree on you know the type the language the specific language to use mm-hmm. I mean I, I I get it you know and I feel like a, a lot of the place where people have been landing is that it's an individual choice at mm-hmm. the end of the day people have the right to choose how they how what what language they are particularly comfortable mm-hmm. with yeah, absolutely and I think that that's really the important part of this. It's about ownership. It's about the disability community having the right to say, you know what, we want to have the choice about how we are spoken about, and and I feel like, and whatever that those the particulars of that are. That's not the important part. The important part is that we give the community that power. And I feel like that's what's going on, you know, in all the other, you know, um, minority advocacy spaces as well. Um, it's just giving the power to to people to be able to to choose how they want to be spoken about.
1: So here's my pushback on that. My only pushback because I agree with you. I, in, in all my documentation, my teaching, it is about the individual choosing the language. So, if somebody says, "Oh, I'm handicapped." I'm not going to, I'm not going to correct their language. That's how they identify. Um, but how does that help you in marketing? How does that help you if you are putting on your website that you want to be inclusive to a specific group, that you are inviting people into your space um, from a, you know, from the blind community or the deaf community? Um, you have to use the highest bar of language in those, in those moments, and then you have to learn about people as an individual. Right. Right. So when we have a group of blind folks come to the theater, you know, what we say to our volunteers and our staff is use blind, and partial sighted. And then if somebody says, no, I, I, I choose low vision and they tell you that specifically, then you can you can emulate that. But until you know how they identify and most people won't, because if you use the highest bar, they're not going to say, oh, no, 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 that's that's poor language. But if you do the opposite you tend to offend folks. And and like, you know, this is a controversial thing, but the whole idea around the term visually impaired is changing big time because impaired is the, the blind community is the last community of people with disabilities to let go of the term impaired. So in terms of community language, highest bar, you're not cognitively impaired, you're not mobility impaired, you're not hearing impaired. In fact, if you use that in the deaf community, that's a huge insult. But we're still, we're still visually impaired. We still use that. And that's because it's tied to the medical model. It's a diagnosis. It's a term that your ophthalmologist uses. There's many different degrees of visual impairment. But for some people, they say, well, wait a second. That sends, up, sends, sends a power dynamic that sighted people are not broken. And I am, right? Like there's, there's all of these nuances to language. And we can go to any extreme. So I now don't use that term because I know a handful of people who really are opposed to it. I got a lot of other things to choose. Like there's a ton of other things to choose from. So this is the idea of the highest bar. So if, if, if you come out and say, hey, visually impaired people are welcome to the theater or welcome in my restaurant or welcome wherever, and you've got people who are offended, they won't patronize you. They won't spend your money in your, in your establishment. They won't purchase from you um, because there are people in the disability community who are that empowered around language. Um, so from a marketing perspective, uh, from a perspective of speaking about groups of people as opposed to an individual, I think we have to look at what the highest bar is. And then we speak to the individual if, there's, if we have relationships with these people, right? Because if you don't have a relationship with somebody and you just see them in passing, then, you know, you're not going to get into that level of no- nuance either.
2: Yeah, but Amy, you're giving me work. i I just i just searched on my website and i've got 75 products that use the term impaired in some way on them now i gotta go and now i gotta edit damn it
1: (laughs) i mean that's that's listen i you know again it's very regional and some people won't be bothered but i know i know a huge number of people that are on this upswing of let's get rid of impaired i'm not drunk i'm not broken
0: And again, that's that's great that the disability community who we're talking to has come to that consensus. But the mainstream has no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) They don't know what that high bar language is. So, you know, here we are. Everybody needs education, but nobody's being educated. So,
1: well, this is this is why I said ableism and the disability experience is the second cousin twice removed. Because there are lots of spaces where you can like find webinars and teachings around decolonization around black lives matter around other equity seeking groups, but not so much around disability. Right. And so it makes it a lot, a lot, a lot harder. And this is why people come knocking on my door because they hear from another organization that I've shared some information and another organization that I've shared some information. Um, And so it started to, to chain, you know, to, to, Snowball, I guess, is the term, because um, nobody else was offering this information in this space. And it's just that I had been so interested in language from the moment I acquired my disability, from the moment, because I was a sighted, able-bodied person until I wasn't. And then all of a sudden, people were calling me things, and I was like, no, I don't identify that way. Um, And I started to research why I felt the way I felt around language, Because people were looking at me as if, oh, I was, I was not broken and now I am. And it's like, well, wait a second. There are lots of things that I can do. Don't assume that I'm broken and that I can't do anything. And that impacted me so much in the world that for 12 years I couldn't get employment as a blind person. 12 years. Right. Right. And so then I started doing some real research into language and to other people with disabilities and what they felt about language. And yes, you're right, there's nuances. People will identify, but there is some consensus around language. Um, and then there are some people who are like, yeah, you know what? I don't care, whatever, call me, whatever, no big deal. And those folks, we don't have to worry about in the same way as we have to worry about folks that really are impacted by language. I would say I'm somewhere in the middle, to be honest with you. Cause there are some terms I think, yeah, so what's the big deal about that? But because I know that it might impact somebody else. I choose not to use it. That's how I, mm-hmm. that's how I become an ally to my own community that's, that's me identifying that way. Right. So I'm not, I'm not uh, forcing anybody else to be an ally or teaching Mm -hmm. anybody else to be an ally, but offering information because it's just not, I mean, you can Google all of this stuff too, and you'll find it, but nobody sits down and does that to an extent. I mean, you can Google micro and microaggressions and you'll find a whole bunch of different stuff in there, you know, or you'd have to be more specific. You'd have to Google ableist microaggressions. So none of this stuff is like hidden.
0: Well, and this is why we wanted to talk about it because it's it's slowly coming to the forefront. You know, we're, we're hearing a lot about inclusivity, diversity,
3: mm-hmm.
0: accessibility, person first language. You know, mm-hmm. all of this in the last couple of years has really come to the forefront. And so stuff like ableism, like I was saying to Rob actually earlier today, I don't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. And so... A conversation like this needs to happen more often, and I'm so Absolutely. glad we're having this conversation because, you know, I, I'm exhausted already. It's exhausted. And, you know, <laughs> I I know I know probably in an hour I'm going to say something ableist, and tomorrow I'll be in another one and another one and another yeah. one, and I won't even think twice about it. So, well, but that's maybe the point. maybe you will. Maybe you will. Maybe you will.
1: Yeah. Hopefully. Maybe maybe you'll start. I mean, we did the same thing with racism too, right? Like there are so many racist terms out there and sometimes you utter them and you go, "Oh no. Sure. No, 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 no. That wasn't right. Check yeah. that." Right? Um and then, you know, if you happen to be in a space where you offend somebody, you're like, "I'm I'm really sorry. I'm working on my language." Right? Mm-hmm. Like you know, I think that's also, I think that's also important is that when we make a mistake, if there's somebody there that is offended, that we just own up to that, yeah. right? Like we don't play the ignorant card. We just say, oh, you know what? You're right. You're absolutely right. I'm working on, I'm learning, right? you know, I'm learning. Um, And, and there are lots of, you know, things that I've edited from my language. And I, I mean, like, if you want to, <laughs> you want to talk about minutia, like I used to love to say the word, like, Hey friends, let's just get together and have a powwow okay no no that is that is discriminatory <laughs> right, against right. indigenous folks i right. need to remove that from my language um right and so again minutiae nuance
3: mm.
1: however you want to put it extremes but the truth is is that chinwag or having a gab is just as it's just so as it's interesting to say right it's just that it's we you're right we get into this like default habit right
0: well we learn from the environments we're, we're raised in and brought up in right and we're surrounded and what we see by on so, media yeah 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 well,
3: well also you need just... you need somebody in your party to actually express offense to it
0: right because Before if you're, you're, you're never it. if you're
3: never yeah if, if it's if it's never corrected or ever pointed out then i mean uh, why would you ever remove the behavior so this is a really good point list that you bring up and i'll only just say that um,
1: as, as folks that want to be allies and what we're asked from every, from every equity-seeking group. So if I'm in a space and my friend is being misgendered, it's up to me to stand up, not in a performative way, but to be their ally, right? And so they may misgender my friend and I may use the language to gender them properly. So if you're hearing somebody tell a joke about disability that's really not great. Then you say to your friend, Hey, you know, that's just not, that's not cool. Right. Yeah, I wanted to say, that's not kosher. I don't use that word anymore either. Cause it's not my word to use. Um, and I don't know that the Jewish community cares that I use it, but I just choose, I you know, but there's the example, right? Mm. So it is up to us. You know, it's the same thing if you're in a, in a circle and a, a racist comment is being made, you know, do you stand by there and you say, Oh, yeah, that was kind of funny. You know, I'll just overlook that. Um, And I was again in a space the other day with a group of folks and we were having exactly this conversation. um, And this woman identified as black and she said, you know, sometimes I'm so afraid to say something because I don't want to lose my job, because I don't want to be looked at as um, a troublemaker, because I don't want to look at as disruptive. And that's part of ableism in the disability experience is that we always have to be nice. We can't have a bad day. If we're not nice to people, we're never going to get what we need. but the reality is, is that we're human beings with a human experience, and sometimes we just had enough, right? Um, but, so we need but a disability.
0: A, we need a disability uprising to shake the mainstream up a little bit.
1: Can we? Can we storm? What is it they did in the five hundred four uh, for Crip Camp? We have <laughs> to storm right. our legislature and yeah. hang out on the steps and and uh, you know <laughs> abandon our wheelchairs at the bottom and drag That's our right. bodies climb up ourselves,
0: the drag ourselves. Right? Yeah.
1: Canadians don't do that. I know. Yeah. <laughs> but. You know, our, our, you know, Black Lives Matter was a big thing recently and that community rallied to, to make a statement. And this is why, again, you know, ableism and the disability experience is like the last thing on the list to talk about, because we don't stand up and say, wait a second, we have an experience too. Right. Right. And because any of you can join the club at any time, you able-bodied folks out in the world, accessibility and inclusion should be just as important to you. Sure. Because tomorrow you may not be able to navigate those steps like you can today.
4: Yep. Well, and that's, you know, and that's part of it. What never makes sense to me is, is that why why the pushback against accessibility and inclusion yeah. when absolutely every single one of us to a person is probably heading towards being a member of that community. So it's yeah. really dumb and counterintuitive yeah. to actually have this the last place that we address.
3: Yeah. Well, I, I did a corporate presentation not long ago, and part of my presentation in, in talking about being, um, living with a disability is that we all come into this world disabled. And we, mm-hmm. assuming we live our natural lives, usually leave the, the world with a form of disability. So it is a, a part of the natural life cycle, but we don't acknowledge it during that time in between. All right. And just like Rob was saying, is that it's the it's the only minority group that people can enter and exit at any point in their lives.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: And I think it's that scares is this, some, can I say, but Jesus, I don't know
1: <laughs> yeah, I would.
2: Is that a word? around my mom.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. I, you know, it's, it, it's a, it's a big conversation and you sort of just like y'all said, it's exhausting. I mean, think about this from my perspe- perspective. I do this several times a day. <laughs> this is like what I'm doing in all the spaces that I'm in. Um, so I'm having these conversations a lot with folks and I am constantly learning from, from our communities and from folks around. And that is also the beauty of the work is that it, it keeps, it keeps evolving and it keeps changing. And it, and it, that's a good thing. I think, you know, um, in all, for all equity seeking people, it's a good thing that we keep having these conversations. Um, even if they don't resonate, even if they don't absorb in the moment, it's like the more somebody sort of experiences them, the more, we recognize them, right? right?
0: Yeah, yep.
1: That's so- that's the work, friends, and for all of us who are out, who are in equity-seeking groups, and who want to be allies of others in equity-seeking groups, I think that's my 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 humble my humble pitch. When I do when I do my opening house speech for the uh, theater performance, I do a land acknowledgement, and I share with them that I'm a settler, um, an uninvited guest on these lands, and what I think I've been asked to do is to listen to acknowledge the truth and to look towards a future with the spirit of reconciliation. Those are things that I have been asked to do by, by indigenous folks, is to not ignore what they're saying, right? And it's like, how do we do that in the disability community?
4: Yeah, yeah.
1: How, how, how do we get people to not go, oh, you're being ridiculous about this? Come on, seriously, you're that impacted by this? Mm-hmm. Oh my God, right? Like, how do we, how do, we do that? I don't know. That's a dot 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 for me, and and the, and work that I continue to do, and to continue to ask other people in our community how we do that.
4: Um, in terms of that, though, so one thing that I want to sort of uh, extend upon what you were just talking about is that one. What do you? And I want to get your impression, Amy, because you're you're really in this space. But for me, you know, sort of on the outside looking in, I get sometimes sometimes intimidated by the real, I don't know what the word to use is, but they're sort of the real passionate advocates Mm -hmm. that are out there. And I think that part of this is a social media problem, because I think that Mm -hmm. in the social media space, there are people out there that are just all about outrage. Like that's, they they look for things to get outraged about, and they look for people to attack. And this is part of the problem in that space that that I think that is almost counterproductive because they go searching out people to jump on about things like language and they attack them. And all of that really does instead of instead of making it like a learning moment like we're having here. Right. Instead of teaching people what language to use, they attack them. And what that does is that those people then just become afraid to even engage. And mm-hmm. they just they just shut down and they're never talking about disability again or they're never posting or they're never you know they're, they're just not engaging and i think that that's really counterproductive what's your kind of experience in that and and how do you see sort of a, a balance going on
1: yeah so i know some advocates in the space and i you know i'm not sure i would necessarily call them passionate because i think mm-hmm. i'm passionate but my approach is logic reason understanding education um, there are some advocates out there who uh, attack and who threaten. Uh, this is a human rights violation, um, and, and I find, this is, this is my, my experience has been um, if you put the way I advocate next to um, that sort of antagonistic advocacy, um, I think that makes some folks with disabilities feel really powerful, but what it doesn't do is bring people back to knock on your door when they have follow-up questions. Right. So they, as you said, Rob, they, they kind of go, Ooh, I don't know if I can approach that person. Cause the last time we engaged, they were really angry. And for me, everything I do is an offer. It's an offer. It's like I said, it's not, I'm not trying to change your mind. I'm not trying to, you know, give you rules or a system that you must follow or you will die. Right. Like I am offering you what I know, what I've experienced, what I've learned from the community all the information that's been gathered so that you can get it in, you know, hopefully, um, uh, like almost a one-stop shop to start the conversation and to grow from there. Because like we couldn't possibly do everything in an hour or in one webinar or whatever. But this idea of having enough information to go, huh, I'm interested in going to the next one. Huh, I had no idea about some of those things. Um, so I tend to, I tend to find... In my own advocacy, and I've been doing it for 15 years, that you are better off to catch flies with honey than you are with vinegar. That old that old analogy, um, and I and I learned that a lot through working with architects um, and municipalities because these are folks that um, I don't want to say don't care about accessibility, but accessibility is always balanced against the bottom line, the dollar. So you really have to you really have to encourage people to do it because it's the right thing to do. Um, And try and leave the money out of it, which is a really hard thing to do. Uh, Because again, at the end of the day, it's like, well, that's going to cost me a lot of money. You know, This is like, this is just, you know, whether this is ableism or not. Um, I said to a developer once, he he was building a $4 million condo, condo building, $4 million condos on the North Shore. And uh, they had two balconies. And we were talking about um, barrier-free balconies so that folks who are wheelchair users can get out onto the balcony. Because usually they have like a step up or a step down. And that's done, of course, because the envelope can leak. They want to make it as waterproof as possible. Um, But it can be done with a barrier-free balcony. It just costs more money. Uh, But build that in from from scratch, no big deal. So I said to this architect, because he said to me, well, what if we make one of the balconies accessible? And I kind of laughed a bit and I said, you know that Porsche that you came in today? What if I make the driver's side Door not open, but the passenger door open. Like, if I'm spending $4 million on a condo because I live in the British properties in a big house and I've been there for 60 years, and I'm now a senior who's using a wheelchair or a walker or just has trouble with steps, and I'm going to downsize to a $4 million condo and I can't access the balcony, like, what sense does that make? Um, And so that's like just another way of how we look at the disability experience from this lens of well, it just costs too much for these people to have a quality of life. Um, and that, you know, you know, when I approached that, I, like, I could have said to him, well, you know, it's somebody's human right to have equal access to their home. But I didn't. I, I, I used an analogy that made sense to him in his fancy sports car. And he was like, oh, yeah, if I'm going to spend $100,000 on a car, I want to get in both doors. Uh huh. Yeah, of course you do. Right. Like, so I always am finding ways of meeting people at their level with wherever they are on what I call the accessibility continuum, right? There's, it's a continuum and we have to recognize where we are and make a commitment to just move forward. That's it. So you can you can come into the continuum and say, I know absolutely nothing. And every day I'm gonna learn one small thing that I can do to move forward. And this is what I do. And Like I, I work full-time for the arts club and every week I provide them with what I call an accessibility nugget. And it's just like, a, it's a little tidbit. It's a little soundbite. It's a little thing on language or a little thing on the experience. And they they sort of learn it by osmosis, right? It's like, oh, every week I'm learning this thing. You know, I just sent them this week a, a thing on International Day of People with Disabilities. That's great. None of them have ever heard of that before, right? Now they know. So there are all sorts of ways that we can filter the content in like digestible chunks so that it doesn't feel so overwhelming. But then there are some folks that really want to take like a deep dive three hour webinar. And I do that too sometimes because it just depends on what the individual wants and what they can, what their capacity is to hold it. Right.
0: Add me to your email list. (laughs) 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 Once a week is fine. Thank you.
4: (laughs) Well, and it's interesting too, because, you know, when, when we're talking about changing these big societal attitudes, it can become Mm -hmm. really intimidating Mm -hmm and feel like, you know, man, we're just at the bottom of this huge mountain. But, you know, maybe that's the thing about language and the importance of changing language, because like you said before, it's a small change that people can make and slowly but surely, if they can just start to slowly change the way that they that, that their, their language, slowly but surely, their attitudes will come along with it. and. You know, in terms of society, you know, if yeah. one group starts to do it, it just it it spreads, yeah. and um, you know that's how we start to really see some change.
1: You know, one, I mean, you know, ableism is a, a big barrier, certainly to the community, but the attitudinal barrier is like the two the two of them are married to each other, right? So it's yep. you got to look at the attitudinal barrier and and the relationship to ableism and look at how we start dismantling that system right there's a lot of talk these days about systems um yep and and that and that's part of it and it takes time and it will never be perfect because not everybody either believes wants to buy in wants to have these conversations cares about these conversations so we do what we can do as human beings right like i also say that i educate one person at a time because that's really how it goes right even if i have 50 people on a webinar, it's really still just one person at a time. And then the hope is, is that somebody else is like, hey, you know what? I learned this thing. Um, I'm going to share this with somebody else, right? And then it starts to grow that way. And that only, only happens when you when you educate in, with the spirit of, again, I open all my webinars with, this is a judgment-free zone, right? Like this is where you can ask your questions. You don't have to worry about language. We'll talk about it, you know? Uh, I'll point you in the direction if you are like, oh, can I use this? Can I use that? Like, use whatever you need to use in this space because this is where we learn. Um, and I actually don't get offered that often when I'm on webinars in other equity-seeking communities. I don't get the opportunity to ask questions. Like, if I I, I took an LGBTQ2 plus uh, uh, webinar recently, and I just had I had so many questions about about the word queer and how the word queer is changing and means something very different than it did when I was growing up. Um, But I didn't feel safe to ask that question in that environment uh, because it's not my lived experience, right? So I really wanna wanna create a space where folks don't feel judged um, if they have questions to ask about the disability experience. And that's where we do that. Don't ask me on the bus, ask me in this safe place because um, this is where I, I can engage with you in a teaching way, better engage with you. I mean, on a bus, you're with somebody for three minutes. Then they get up and somebody else sits down and I get asked again. Then they leave and somebody <laughs> else sits down and I get asked again. So I always say to people, I get asked like 12 times a day, these like weird r- random questions about, my disability experience. How do I get dressed in the morning? How do I cook my food? How do I, and it's like, just ask me, you know, how I'm enjoying the weather. (laughs) That old question. You know, sometimes it's just too much when you're
3: asked constantly. So a good pickup line would not be, Hey, how do you have sex? (laughs) Just for any guy, wouldn't believe how often that actually happens just for anyone out there listening that may want to talk to Amy afterwards. Do not ask her about how she has sex. You will end up with a black eye. Okay. And if I can find your eye, (laughs) you might end up with a black shoulder,
1: a chin or a knee or something. But yeah. yeah.
2: However, that totally works for me.
0: Yeah. (laughs) It totally works
1: for you. Well, Steve, maybe you need to put on your website uh, some devices (laughs) that are accessible
0: No, (laughs) I am not doing tech support on assistive devices for sexual aids. No, I quit.
3: Oh, we just did a podcast not long ago, Amy, where somebody wrote it in their book about a a client who built a masturbation machine. And Steve is still hard at work in his garage.
1: (laughs) 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 Listen, I've had again, this is a conversation that we have a lot in the community with my my friends with disabilities. You know, when you get together with other folks with disabilities. You are shooting the shit like nobody's business and you get to be raw and transparent and go deep into places that you never thought. And I have been told so many things from my CP friends, my quadriplegic friends about how that works. My mind gets a little blown, (laughs) It's just a little blown. So I don't actually have to ask anybody how they have sex because I've already been told. By all my male friends who identify this way, how they do this, and it's like, okay, all right, thanks for sharing. Uh, next question, like next topic.
4: But you know, that's it, like I really feel like that is such an important way to do this. Um, is is creating these safe spaces for people that they can just be open, they can they can ask questions. Yeah. It's, it's a not. It's a it's a judge free zone. I really feel like that's a really a really great way it's to key. do it. So, I mean, obviously we just, we just need to clone you (laughs) and, uh, we need to work on that cloning technology, clone a bunch of you run a bunch of webinars. As long
1: as I get a residual Rob from every clone, we're good to go. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I think there's definitely a a part two and a part three. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah.
4: It's a big topic. Absolutely. It's a huge topic and there's so much to it. Yeah. Um, there's so many moving parts here and it's really, the, the trick is, I think it's just, you know, how do you, where do you start? Yeah. Yeah. How do you start? How do you start? That's well put Ryan.
3: Yeah.
4: Well, we started well, with I'm, language today.
2: I'm starting by removing visually impaired from the descriptions of <laughs> 75 products. And I, I'd, I'd, I'd also like to point out that all of those descriptions, almost virtually every single one of them have been pulled off of my supplier's websites. Sure. So yeah. it's not just it's so not just seeing, me in this industry. It's it's the, the whole industry. It's is, the vocabulary, yeah, yeah, it
0: has has got a reckoning with vocabulary. It's well, like Amy said, it was She's it slowly. was a med- medically diagnosis, right? You know, yeah. impairment. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent.
1: Yeah, Yep.
4: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Hmm. I know. I know. You've heard some folks in the community, Ryan, even maybe say, or, or Liz, maybe say things like, "I don't have a lack of vision. I have a lack of sight," because they're making this separate distinction between vision. Right. Being not something that comes from your eyes, but something that comes from your brain
0: yeah.
1: um, and sight. And again, like this is getting into the minutia, and I don't think we're in a place yet where we're like changing that language in a strong way but you know it is interesting to see how some people are like no no, I mean even this the Canadian Council of the blind slogan is a lack of sight is not a lack of vision. right. So you're starting to see this 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 slow creeping change in, in a different sort of more empowerment direction yeah. as opposed to a medical diagnostic direction
0: yeah yeah and there's organizations that like ffb i'll, I'll name them anyway um <laughs> you know there, there are there are people that really hate that fighting yes. blindness part right like yes. what is there to fight that's why right. are we fighting against blindness yeah you, know, you know so yeah that's it's, it's a a whole very category. much a medical
1: model right
4: absolutely yeah we we have to i would love to talk about that more on a on a yeah Because I think that's another really huge, um, great conversation. Uh, Because yeah, you do have you do have organizations out there that have very different mandates. and um, I think about
1: that in the world of diabetes, too, right? It's like, we want to cure diabetes. And I get that. But what do I what do the rest of us do who are living with the complications of diabetes? Yeah, while we're waiting for that cure, right? So I don't I don't think that it's a problem to have research into doing cures sure. and having preventative research but I also don't want folks to I don't want researchers and the and the mainstream community to forget about those of us who are living today with these experiences because we need support too and accommodations and allyship and adaptation and you know, understanding and all those things that go with our lived experience. Cause I'm not going to sit around and be like, Oh, great. Maybe when I'm 90, they'll know how to develop a retina out of DNA.
3: Like,
1: You know, it's not, you know, so I I have a life to live now. Anyways, end of thought, friends.
0: All right. You're coming back next week.
1: I'm coming back whenever (laughs) you, whenever you're (laughs) brave enough to have me back.
4: Uh, No, actually, no, we seriously, we, we would love to have you back. We need to do this. Yeah. We need a
0: part. two.
1: Sure. Yeah. 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 You set it so, up. I'll, I'll be in the same bat chair at the same bat time.
4: Okay. Perfect. It's a deal. It is a deal. <laughs> Amy, I want to thank you so much for joining us. This has welcome a delight. I've learned a lot. I hope I haven't
0: offended anyone at all. If I have, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> I know nothing.
1: <laughs> but now you know a little something, Ryan.
0: Let's see if I remember it. <laughs> you'll, be su- you'll
1: be surprised. Yeah, you will probably. be surprised. You'll start to notice things you'll you'll start to hear it on tv and you'll be like oh yeah yeah that's really common that's much more common than i remember right right like it's it's everywhere
4: yeah and i mean i mean i have a personal uh, sort of a personal connection too i mean i i came from the assistive technology um industry yeah. uh into a nonprofit, and i had to change the way that because i was the same way i was like visually impaired like i didn't think anything of it that was the the language that i cut my teeth on for many many years in the assistive technology field it was just a thing and mm-hmm. so when i moved to this nonprofit, they were like well no it's if you can't use visually impaired it has to be partially sighted and i i don't know how many times i slipped up in <laughs> in emails and in the marketing copy and stuff yeah. and 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 it took a while but now it's just it's it's common like i never use that term at all anymore it's always partially sighted and i mean i think that i've i've kind of influenced ryan and steve as well because um you know I, i'm always saying partially sighted as opposed to visually impaired so um you know it, it takes some time but but it's totally possible yeah. but, but here's the thing around that term though that term came from the community because
2: people. no the who term have... came
1: from the doctors first okay Right? You leave your doctor's office saying, oh, my diagnosis is visual impairment. Just like you leave saying my diagnosis is stage three, whatever.
2: Because I've had people take me to task for using the term blindness mm-hmm. in reference to them because they're not blind, they're visually impaired. Mm-hmm. And, and I've been corrected to use the term visually impaired by people. So I think that's what I mean, the disability community <laughs> can't agree. Right. So this, again, is the, this is
1: the reminder yeah. that everybody gets to identify individually as they choose. And if yeah. you know that, that's great. But you're not going to address the whole community with that right. term. Right. Yeah. That's that's the difference. I mean, a lot of people that use visually impaired are now just using low vision. Um, because again, like partially sighted, um, you know, for some folks, it doesn't quite resonate with them and neither does blind, but for some folks, like I identify as blind all the time when in reality, I actually do have some partial sight, but I just use blind because it's so much easier. I don't have to explain a lot of stuff to folks, you know,
0: when I'm just thinking about, you know, like listening to the limitless show, little plug there, um, you know, (laughs) when people are talking about partially sighted, there is such a spectrum when it comes to vision loss. And so when you say partially sighted, well. Just because I might see shades of black and orange, is that sight?
1: Well, um, I think, you know, there is a medical, I don't want to get into that, but there is a medical. that's what I'm saying. There's
0: a spectrum there, right? So,
1: yeah, there there is a spectrum spectrum of visual impairment. So, like, and I'm reaching from my memory here, so that I may not be 100% correct in how I'm voicing this, but there's like, profoundly visually impaired and like, right? Um, you know, like there's a different, different levels of visual impairment that equate to your 20 over 200 and up, um, acuity. So
3: you, so you don't refer to it as legally blind.
1: I use all terms. I use blind, partially sighted, partially, partially blind, low vision, sight loss, um, uh, non-visual and visual experience and legally blind. Those are seven terms that I use. I never use visually impaired because of what I've learned from my community. And I actually myself believe that because I don't wanna set up a power dynamic. Um, I'm a, I'm a human being first. Um, so I those are seven, and, and it depends on like what I'm doing and who I'm communicating with and what almost they need to be able to understand my experience. If I'm looking for ketchup in a grocery store and I can't find it, I might say to somebody, I'm blind, can you help me find the ketchup? Easy peasy, right? Like mm-hmm. you say, I'm, I'm partially sighted. They go, what does that mean? Yeah. Right. You know, so it just depends on, on what it is that I'm doing. If I'm, I'm going to go in and try and, I don't know, buy a magnifying glass from Steve, I'm going to say I have partial sight because, you know, I I might need five times. I may need eight times. I don't know. Um, So it's really, it's really, really just for me, I'm a chameleon that way. It depends on who I'm trying to get the
3: so this, this, I, I don't want to take the conversation into a whole other direction <laughs> now, I, or maybe I'll save this for the next podcast episode, but I am curious. So you, you, you don't use a cane. No, I do. Yeah, no, my, the- my acuity
1: is, is like close to 20 over 1200 legal blindness starts at 20 over 200. Mm-hmm. So I'm way, I have about 2% sight. way on the far end of close to totalness.
3: Okay. No, because usually the, you know, the, 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 the use of the, the white cane, not only of course, to keep me from falling down a flight of stairs is also to alert the world around us that, uh, that i'm low vision legally blind (laughs) yeah like i can't find the damn ketchup (laughs) (laughs) but
1: you have to have people that actually know what that cane means and this is another like again a whole other podcast topic but you know if we were able to i i was in a space once and i said you know children are sponges so can you just imagine a world just imagine a world where your kindergartner is learning a sign language oh and maybe learning some basic braille alphabet, and learning about what a wheelchair is and why people use them and what a white cane is, how much more evolved as human beings they would be as adults. And it doesn't take much because the kids are the ones that really, really want to know the information, right? They absorb it like sponges and they could probably learn braille in a really short time, but if they ever need it, they've got it. And- they understand what that means for somebody who uses it. And of course, the deaf community, um, culturally deaf folks, are pushing very hard, and I, and I hope that they get this, for ASL to be um, a registered Canadian language like French and English is. Mm. Um, and so, you know, all of us as service providers who are working in like government environments would start with government environments, of course, um, are going to have to either have ASL interpreters or learn ASL communication. Um, I would have loved to have learned how to do that when I was a kid, even though I wasn't deaf or blind, but it would have helped me today knowing Braille because as a 24 year old, when I lost my sight, there was, it's very complicated for me to try and learn Braille. I don't know. I just think, you know, it's there are some things we learn as kids that could be really interesting from a like a global lived experience, understanding of human being perspective. Which is not to say that, you know, there isn't value in the other things that kids learn, but there's real value in this too. You know, anyways, that's just, that's just my random, my random tangent thought.
4: It's true though. It is true. That's, that's, that's who you want to hit. It's the kids.
1: Yeah. It makes a big difference. And, and I, you know, I know, again, I know folks that have grandchildren now and their grandchildren are coming home to them and saying, we have somebody in my, my class that, that was a boy and now is a girl. Right. And so they're learning about pronouns and they're learning about gender identification and, um, the, you know, this student's experience of transitioning at such a young age. And then they go home and they teach grandma and grandpa who are like likely in their 50s. Right. Um, and, and these people are coming to me and I'm and they're telling me about like learning about pronouns and the importance of of this, you know, this stuff was not taught when I was in high school.
0: It wasn't taught five um, years ago.
1: It wasn't ta- exactly Ryan, and so, but like, how much more inclusive are, are is that generation going to be of this experience, um, growing up? Right, like, I'm hoping that that means a great deal of change for us as as human beings as we continue to evolve.
0: We're going to have a 12 part AT banter series <laughs> in the new year. <laughs>
3: talking now because the Gemini in me would just go forever so. there,
4: yeah, there's a lot to talk <laughs> yeah, we, about absolutely there, there is and uh, yeah absolutely I agree and uh I can't wait so pretty much you yeah February now. January February and March uh yeah,
0: we keep yeah. your calendar
4: open yeah no no
0: well, I, I was, I'm gonna say
1: book a spot now Ryan I
0: will I'll <laughs> send you an email tomorrow
1: won't be open for long yeah
0: I'll email you tomorrow. Already already working 150 hours a week. (laughs) You got it. No, this has been great, Amy. I really appreciate your time.
1: Thanks for sharing space with me.
4: Uh, Hey, absolutely. Anytime. And uh, let's get out of here. What do you say?
1: Time for dinner.
4: Yeah. good. All right, guys well uh oh wait i guess we should you, should we do the outro oh, let's yeah let's do the let's outro, do the outro let's finish it up yep. what the hell is, you, you yeah, can wow. see how the sausage is made uh amy it's, it's fascinating uh okay well listen i want to thank amy once again and uh thank you my co-hosts my lovely co-hosts see this has put me in such a great mood i'm i now i'm just i feel all warm and fuzzy Uh
2: yeah, and I would I would like to clarify your earlier statement about hitting kids. Uh, we in no way uh, advocate hitting kids.
4: Wait, when did I say hit hitting ki- kids? Did you were I talking
2: about, you were talking about education. It's like yeah, the kids. Those are the ones you want to hit. Wow, I missed that.
3: Oh my God, you just brought a tear to my almond eyes.
4: Oh,
3: <laughs> and only you get to say that, Lane.
4: Oh my, that's hilarious. Oh, man. All right. Well, let me get out of here before uh, we might have to contact our, our guest from last week, Laney Feingold, the, uh, the, the lawyer. Yeah. That's really a rights lawyer. That's yeah. right. Uh, all right. Well, listen. Hey, Ryan. Rob. Uh, where can people find us? They can find us online at atbanter.com. Hey, they can also drop us an email if they so desire at cowbell at uh, atbanter.com. That's right, and they can
2: find us on Twitter and Facebook, but not Instagram. Hell, Instagram.
4: That's hey, right. you know what? Speaking of that, uh, speaking of dropping Instagram, did you guys hear that Lush um, removed themselves from all social media? Yeah, yeah good so. for them.
2: I applaud that move. I think everybody yeah. should remove themselves from social media. It's, I was,
4: it, it, I was it, very it, impressed. Rabbit
2: hole, none of us should be going down.
4: Exactly. So who knows? Who knows how long it might be before At Banter follows suit? Because Lush, I mean even though every time i walk into a lush store i sneeze it's kind of <laughs> very this this scents are really overwhelming there's too many Sense. open containers of like those bath bombs and stuff i just like i don't even know what i'm smelling but i just it, yeah i just go into a sneezing fit but good yeah. for them for removing themselves off social media
2: indeed but anyways and uh, hey wait wait wasn't there a phone number
4: people can get us at too hey yeah let's talk about that hey ryan yeah <laughs> Don't sound so annoyed. Sorry for disturbing you. <laughs> over there. Was I annoyed sounding? I'm sorry. It was a little bit annoying. I apologize. Uh, what's uh, what's that phone number that people can call if they, if they want to call us?
0: Well, if they want to call us, if they have a comment or topic suggestion for the show, they can call 1-844-996-4282. Leave us your name, your message. And if you give us your permission, we may play it on an upcoming episode.
2: That's right. And Ryan can also take Interact e-transfers at that number.
0: (laughs) Not not yet, but maybe. (laughs)
4: Uh, All right. Well, listen, I want to once again, thank you to Amy for joining us. Thanks, Liz, for helping us out once again.
3: My pleasure.
4: And uh, we will see everybody next week. Bye.